Hello, and welcome to The Making of a Nacho Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today we have two producers of the National Geographic documentary, Rebuilding Paradise, Sarah Bernstein and Zan Parker. And joining us later is Michelle John, who is featured in the film. Welcome, Sarah and Zan. We're so honored to have you with us to talk about this incredible film. So, you know, with something like this, my first question is always the inception and how you dared to take on such an ambitious project. And your collaborator and partner in crime, of course, director Ron Howard was key to this. And I know he has a personal connection to Paradise. So maybe one of you could explain that. And then we'll talk a little bit about each of your roles on the project. So maybe Sarah, give us a little insight into Ron's Paradise connection. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because we had just, frankly, launched a new documentary division for Imagine Entertainment, which, of course, is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company. And Ron, having directed several documentaries previously, we had prior to the events of November 8th, just started talking about what would be his next project. And he really had described just a deep, deep passion for wanting to capture a real people in the midst of something, you know, really important, frankly. And clearly tragedy struck on November 8th and Ron had been watching the news coverage along with probably most of the world. And it turned out actually that he had had family relatively close by to Paradise. His mother-in-law actually had lived in Paradise for a period of time. So he he actually felt incredibly connected to the community and wanting to just try to do something for this community. And quickly, we just started talking about what would it be like and how would this community actually bounce back? How does one bounce back after they have lost everything, including obviously many lives? So we quickly mobilized. We had a team that went to Paradise and who started, you know, just talking to people, gaining access. And several weeks later, Ron was on the ground. I was with him. We were meeting subjects like the wonderful Michelle John. And it became clear that there was something really, really important to potentially capture. And this idea of, you know, what if we followed this community for a year in the wake of the incredibly tragic campfire. How does a community come back? What does it mean to rebuild? What does resilience look like? And then we went on our way. And Zan Parker obviously joined us soon after that. And Zan, tell me about your role and how did you augment the work that was already being done? And what did you do that was sort of unique and separate from the other producers? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, You know, there are uh, quite a few producers on this film, but we all have very complimentary talents. And so it was a great team and filmmaking is a team sport. So I was very proud to be on this team. You know, Sarah and her partner, Justin Wilkes, are excellent at creating those relationships with an incredible platform like National Geographic. And, you know, with great, I think I called Ron the other day, a national treasure when we were speaking to the Italian film festival and he is a national treasure. And that, uh, you know, so bringing together all those talents and then finding a way to distribute the film and to fund the film, which is very, very important in filmmaking. And then filmmakers like myself and uh, Liz Morheim, who's my co-producer, who was in the field with me for a year. And then also the two amazing editors, Mickey Milmore and Gladys Mae Murphy. What we do is we're just kind of like in the 
the weeds of it all. So I'm a creative producer, so I'll come in and help do the casting, help do the story mapping, work to execute on the director's vision. And I think, like Sarah said, you know, Ron, as much as anyone was asking, where's the story going to go? What is going to happen? What is it going to be like to go through a year with them? And he wasn't sure. No one was sure. Would they rebuild? Would they be resilient? Well, he normally has a script that he can turn to for these answers. And yes, (laughs) not so much. Yes. He wanted to do this verite, which is really one of the hardest, I think, documentary filmmaking forms. But it's one that actually both Sarah and I really grew up in, in documentary film in New York. Sarah doing a lot of work as an executive producer and a producer of a lot of documentaries. And myself as a director and producer of a lot of documentaries kind of, you know, out on the scrappy side. And so we formed this team where we, you know, had great collaborators. Also Lincoln Else, who's from the Bay Area and who is the son of the great documentary. And John Els, so he's also very well trained. We all kind of put our heads together and talked a lot about what were we going to find? What were we going to see? We watched films, a lot of films about Katrina in the year after Katrina. And we read a lot of books and we talked to a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists about what to expect. And that helped us map out a story. And then we, you know, Ron would give us input on, you know, when we give him a story map, oh, well, let's, maybe this character can bring out this theme or make sure we don't miss the high school graduation, for instance. That's pretty key. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we would then sort of plan out together with him what would be the milestones, who the characters would be. And in many ways, With this one, we really built the airplane as we were flying it, which is different than what Sarah and I have often done in Verite films, where you have this idea of what the story's going to be, and you cast, so to speak, the characters. You select the characters you're going to follow before the story starts. In this one, the story had started. Right. And what did you learn, I'm curious, from watching Katrina documentaries that you thought, okay, this was done well, but here's where I think they could have done X better? How did you learn from that and then, I guess, expound and want to maybe do better in your film, Sarah? Well, it was interesting because I think, you know, Katrina was an obvious comparison because there was such devastation, clearly, that had affected that community. And there were also several really wonderful award-winning documentaries that were done on the subject. And what was important for us as we sort of, you know, as Anne said, we kind of jumped on this plane and just took off, was to try to figure out how do we tell a macro story? There is a lot of issues that, you know, that play into a horrific tragedy like the campfire, least of which sort of the role that climate change has played in it. And clearly we have been seeing this all around the world and certainly back in California in a really horrific, devastating way just even the past few months. So how do you feed the context and the important information into a documentary project that you want to, frankly, be really character driven and you want it to be, as we call it, the microcosm of a community or a town like Paradise, and you want it to be driven by the townspeople's experiences. And that's how we want information to come across. So it was it was interesting to look at big projects, for example, like When the Levees Broke, Spike Lee's Incredible That was the first thing I thought of, yeah. Yeah, and I was fortunate enough to have been at HBO during that time. 
to look at what he did over many hours. It was not just a feature documentary. And then to also look at a film like Trouble the Water, which was a much more personal experience of citizens, you know, on the ground and what they were experiencing as it was unfolding. And to try to figure out what is the project that we all wanted to make and really what did Ron want to make. And I think Ron talks about it incredibly well. And he says it's sort of like our town. This idea that you are experiencing, and this was something Zan and Liz really, really, I think, pegged as they were our producers who were spending the most of their time on the ground, that this was a community that was experiencing really the stages of grief. And so what is that chart? How do you essentially create a structure that can, as I said, embody all of these really important issues like fire prevention and safety and you know, certainly personal loss through just a very deeply personal story. The only thing I would add is that um, it's funny, it was actually literally right before this, I was talking to this woman who runs this mindful program for kids. And it turns out she's doing it up on the Paradise Ridge right now. And so she connected with me about who did I know up there? And she knows Michelle. And she said, how did you figure this out? You know, what the emotional reaction would be. And actually, you know, very early on, Liz, my producing partner, she found what almost looks like a dime store psychology kind of little tarot card, which is the emotional life cycle of a disaster. And it's a graph that graphs that community emotional state. And, you know, right when the disaster hits soon after that, when you kind of feel like, okay, we're alive, you know, and you get this high, but then that decline, which can be slow and it can be long or it can be fast and it can be long of your emotional state and then the repair part of it and where you start to see the emotional resilience, so to speak. So that was kind of a map for us. And it's a map really for all of us, I think, as we look at a world that's filled with so many more of these, what we call natural disasters. They're really mostly man-made or man-affected, as we know. The other thing is that Sarah and I early on met with this, actually a National Geographic fellow, a photographer named Pete Mueller, who does a lot of work around this concept of solastalgia, which is this new word that's been coined by this uh, Australian philosopher, Glenn Albrecht, it's defined as basically emotional and existential distress that's caused by environment change. And those two ideas or concepts were very much guiding lights as we mapped out the story ahead of us. The only other thing I would just add to that is that we are just forever grateful to Nat Geo and our partners there, especially Courtney Monroe, Carolyn Bernstein, Ryan Harrington, because they really supported essentially jumping into this plane with us and allowing us to film and document what happened in this community over the course of a year and frankly without really knowing where it was going to go. And it's hard to find, I think, just true supporters of that kind of verite filmmaking today. This film for me, in a lot of ways, bucks traditional documentary filmmaking in the sense that not once do we see sort of a seated talking head formal interview where an expert talks about climate change or an expert talks about the role of shock on a community or something like that. And you do feature people who are experts in their field, pyrogeologists and folks like that. But everyone's always in motion and always in the field and always doing something. Well, that's cinema verite. 
And that was really my film school in documentary when I started out was learning from the masters of cinema verite, which is capturing life as it happens. It's not so much fly on the wall. You are affecting things, but you are really there because you know something's going to happen. The people are going through something and you have to open your heart to whatever happens. And actually really great from your interview with Sebastian Junger, who said the best kind of story is when it just dissolves all your preconceptions, completely wipes them out, which I think was very bold choice for Ron Howard to make because it is not his usual way of working. Well, I did want to also address a little bit about what you just spoke, the sort of emotional trajectory of grief and shock. In my own experience as a journalist, I have found there's a window of time after something terrible has happened where people are still in shock and maybe they say yes to being interviewed. And then once they fully absorb what has happened to them, sometimes they retreat and decide, oh, I don't want to talk. I don't want to be part of this. Did you see that in play with some of your subjects where at first they said, yes, I'm happy to speak to you. But then as it started to really sink in, they decided that they just couldn't take this on as well. I'll just say that there is something unique about Opie asking you if you want to tell your story on camera. And we have to acknowledge that factor. But you know what? That really does come from who he is. Ron Howard is a, an extremely kind person inside and out. And it's not a coincidence the characters he's played. They feel very present when he's there. And the people of Paradise, they have a nose for authenticity. And they understood that he was leading with his heart and that he was bringing a team in there who were leading with their hearts. Just like, I mean, I was, you know, I feel, it's not the first time I've heard it, but I feel, and I'm sure Sarah does too, um, very honored and very touched when Michelle and the other people who allowed us to tell their stories say that they trusted us because that has to be at the heart of any verite film. And tell me a little bit about your logistical situation in terms of where you were living, how were you eating, making sure you had water? Were you going back and forth from New York to paradise? What was your personal life like? Of course, it was slightly challenging, but nothing clearly compared to what the townspeople and the community of paradise was facing. But, you know, clearly we were fighting for hotel rooms <laughs> when we first got there. And where did you stay, by the way? We were able to stay in Chico, I believe. But like, Probably, I think we grabbed the last hotel rooms and it was not easy, but we can't really complain. I mean, we were able to fly in and out and we were able to return to our families and we clearly were watching a lot of people who were displaced, who didn't know if they were going to have employment, who didn't know how they were going to feed their children. They didn't know how their kids were going to go to school as we, you know, so eloquently really were able to cover Michelle's plate with that as the superintendent. So, I mean, for us, we, you know, it was remarkable that we had the flexibility that we could leave and return. But as you see in the film, I think one of our subjects, Carly, who was the school psychologist, I mean, she's on a jog and running through paradise and she's talking about the state of the water and the contamination and what that means to her as a woman, you know, the effects on her body. So it's, um, I don't know. I mean, Zan, you should talk about it because you were in and out much more than I was. But I just think, you know, that's sometimes the luxury of being the filmmaking team, right? Like you're witnessing what other people are really suffering through, but you're able to kind of pull back from it at times. Although I do think it affected us all consistently and Zan and Liz certainly as they were really living that existence on a monthly basis. Yeah, we actually went, Liz and I had a film 
premiere at Sundance in 2019 in January, and Sarah and Justin asked us to fly directly out to California the day the festival ended and, you know, dig straight in. So we did, and we were there, I would say, about half of every month of last year. It was... Well, and I should also give credit to some local filmmakers who collaborated with us, which I think is also a testament to how much of a team there was behind this film and how willing the people of Paradise were to join that team. So they did a little bit for us, which was great. But we were there a lot. And, you know, of course, we developed relationships with a lot of the movers and shakers in Paradise, but also a lot of the folks who had really been left out in the cold. And I think what is kind of neat about this film is there is the character you know and I use that more in that way that we want to use the word character of the people in paradise they had a lot of self-reliance and they cared about each other and they helped each other and they asked for help and I do want to talk a little bit about the PG&E factor, which I know is a very complicated, important piece of this puzzle. For people who haven't been following this ongoing saga about PG&E's role in the fire, can one of you just give a brief sort of primer on what that is? And also, what have the legal ramifications been since the tragedy? It's complicated. You're a Californian, so you know. It is really complicated. And of course, the corporate leadership has changed a few times. There was a very large lawsuit that's not exactly a class action lawsuit, but a different type of lawsuit that took place. And there has been a sort of settlement, which is sort of a payout to people who suffered in the form of stock. That has not been made yet. Those payments, so to speak, have not been made. The key thing to remember whenever you read any news about PG&E about this fire is that this fire was bundled up in the courts along with, I believe it was 16 or 17 other fires. And I think also the San Bruno explosion several years back. So when you hear that there's a large settlement, you should always remember that that is first divided by many fires and then divided by all the people who suffered. Right. And for the people who have taken legal action against PG&E, what are they claiming the company didn't do that it should have done? PG&E did not maintain their power lines. Uh, they had power lines that were almost 100 years old that were running through the Paradise Ridge on the mountains there. And there was a lot of brush around it. And a company like PG&E needs to believe in climate change because it's hotter later and it's drier. And when the seasonal winds that you all have in California come through in the fall, there's a lot more danger. And so they had not maintained those power lines. So this would actually be a great time to play a clip that talks about the Paradise Fire Department explaining the environmental conditions, namely the dryness and the winds, that helped to create what they refer to in the film as, quote, the perfect storm. Let's take a listen to that. The, the reality is, is that it was November 8th, and we hadn't had any kind of significant rain. It had always rained before trick-or-treating, right? Right, I mean, right. And now, and now we're in these patterns here where we don't see rain until, you know, into November. That morning, the wind cranked up and, you know, you're kind of waiting, like, what's coming next? In this particular case, it was a fire eight miles away, throwing up a column full of embers and the ash. darkest, blackest, calm smoke I've ever seen. And then a 40-mile-an-hour wind taking that over the top of Paradise in perfect alignment and dropping it on the town of Paradise. And so it really was the perfect storm. Sarah, tell me about 
you know, with a lot of these documentaries, when you have this entity that people are criticizing, we see the cursory statement from the communications person. And I actually kind of felt bad for the guy on stage fielding all that anger, you know, when he's on stage trying to answer questions. He's a representative of the company. What went into your decision to not sort of do that formal statement from the company? Did you go to them and say, hey, for this film, we'd love to talk to you and hear your side of the story? Or tell me a little bit about that decision. It's perfect that you actually cite that scene and that moment where there is a pg e representative who comes to the town and he's in many ways clearly sort of brave to be able to face this town head on during this time. But I think that's why we were making a verite or cinema verite type of documentary. So that was organic or holistic in a way to the events as they were actually unfolding. And we did grapple with this. How much information do we have to give? And I think sort of the information that you get is probably the perfect balance and the way that it's actually delivered so that it feels that it's in scene as opposed to your point, asking a spokesperson to give us a formal response because most likely they would have given the response that they've been giving to the press and the journalists who have approached them or there is a formal kind of company line that they have to maintain. And I think you actually see somebody from the company struggling or just feeling like he, I mean, I'm not going to put words in his mouth or imagine how he felt, but I think it was much more genuine kind of response than we would have gotten if it was again, sort of a formal approach. But again, it didn't match what we were accomplishing in the style of the filmmaking. And in terms of the editing process, how many hours of footage total did you shoot? And how did the story continue to take shape in interesting ways in the editing room? We shot about, I can tell you, we shot 330 hours of footage. That's pretty restrained. I think it's very restrained considering we were in the field for 90 cumulative days. We think really hard about what we're shooting, which you have to do because you can't make yourself crazy in the editing room. You do have to make some decisions in the field. But we had another, gosh, probably thousands and thousands of cell phone videos of the fire from the residents of the Paradise Ridge. And that was much harder footage to watch. Let's put it that way. And how did you manage and actually solicit that footage in the first place? I mean, that's really where the team effort comes in. We had relationships on the ground that, you know, did not take effort to develop because everyone in Paradise was very welcoming and wanted to share their story with us. And, you know, we developed trust. And a lot of people would offer to share their videos with us. The firemen offered to share their videos with. The police department was very willing to share their dash cam footage with us. We did have to license from some journalists and local TV stations, but... Everyone understood the value of it. I mean, you know, that there's something inside you nowadays that when you can't believe what you're seeing that makes you pick up your phone and record it. And that was going on in all of them when they were escaping from the fire. And, you know, maybe they needed it to mean something. And I hope we did a good job of bringing that meaning to it. And that footage is certainly just beyond compelling, knowing that just citizens captured it in their front yards. I mean, it really is. It's scary. That opening sequence is very scary. Well, and I think the opening sequence became incredibly important to the overall sentiment of the film. And I think the ability to allow the audience to, in many ways, put themselves as best as they possibly could in the shoes or, you know, in the mindset of the town and how those people on the ground who were capturing this footage must have felt as they were trying to escape this devastating fire. 
and we have to give incredible props to our editors and especially Gladys Murphy, who really did just an incredible job creating that sequence, which I think is probably one of the most memorable parts of the film in some ways, and certainly the most terrifying for people who are watching. What do you think this film teaches us about what first responders are up against now in this new world? But also, what does this film teach us about community resilience that you think maybe we didn't know before? Oh, I love that you asked that question. We can't leave it up to the first responders. It's not fair. And I feel that very strongly having spent a lot of time with the firemen and the police officers in Paradise. It's not fair. They felt so defeated by that fire and they felt like they failed, like they couldn't save their town. You know, and they know the fire's not their fault, but it's their job to save their town. We can't leave it up to them. We can't make it just their problem. We all have to be self-reliant. And that really came across very strongly through all of the people that we filmed, like you said, and just watching things play out, the local politicians and, you know, the local business owners and the moms and the people running the grocery store and the teachers and the kids. You have to be self-resilient. And that kind of works on so many different levels. And I think now we all understand what that means because we've been through something like this. And for me, I love the humanizing moment of that police officer who, you know, we see his family sort of falls apart in the course of this terrible situation. And I think we think of these first responders as action figures who are sort of like little G.I. Joe men who go out and do these jobs. We forget that they have families and marriages and emotional journeys of their own that I feel never fully get recognized. Northern California firefighters work very hard and suffer emotionally a great deal. Sarah, did you want to add anything to that? Just to pick up where Zan was leaving off, I think that in a way this film means something almost entirely different to the world than it did even at the start of production or even frankly when we premiered the film at the Sundance Film Festival because I think in the wake of COVID, I mean, communities are just equally devastated. People have lost employment. People have lost their loved ones. Almost every community is suffering in some way. And I also think, obviously, in light of the surge of wildfires again, too, I just think that this story of a community's resilience is incredibly powerful and hopefully in its own way inspirational to audiences who will see the film on that geo and beyond. And finally, I would love to know how working on this project has changed you and how has it affected what you want to work on in the future, knowing we all have limited time to tell stories. Has this forced you to winnow down the types of projects you want to throw yourself into? You know, it's funny. I just started developing another rebuilding project (laughs) about Beirut after the explosion. You know, people are incredible. You know what this film did? It really actually warmed the cockles of my heart because it's about people who helped each other get through something tough and were working on the things that were important together. And when we started this film, you know, our country was so divided and was having their family members arguing with each other and, you know, so much division out there. And we went out to this town, which is also, by the way, very politically polarized. And we went out to this town and spent a year not hearing one word about national politics. And it was really the greatest gift that they gave us was they just, you know, it was hard to watch these people suffer, 
but they talked about putting a roof over your head or getting the kids back to school or getting the insurance payment. And they talked about being empathetic with each other. Even the guys who are fixing the lines, you know, the PG&E lines would find themselves giving hugs to random strangers in paradise because they needed hugs, you know, and that was so inspiring. And I think that'll probably stick with me for all the other films that I make. And how about you, Sarah? How are you changed from having worked on this? I think I took a lot of inspiration, certainly, from this town of paradise and from our incredible subjects like Michelle John and Matt Gates and Woody. But I think for me personally, the best types of documentaries are Triumph of the Human Spirit. Documentaries are like the everyday person either confronting great odds or overcoming something. So in a way, sort of the everyday person becoming extraordinary. So this is my type of film. But what makes me really happy is that it certainly is becoming Ron Howard's type of film. And we actually have another film that Ron is directing that Imagine Documentaries is producing with Nat Geo Films about World Central Kitchen and chef Jose Andreas and their mission, obviously, to eradicate hunger around the world and to feed as many people as possible and the activism that they've been doing for years, but especially during this time of COVID. So it's a, another great opportunity for us to be able to follow the everyday person doing something really extraordinary. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us. And it's really just been an incredible experience hearing about this and also applying it to having watched the film and now knowing what went into it. It's just a real achievement. So congratulations. Thank you so much for having us. Well, I'm actually going to be speaking to one of the amazing subjects from your film, Michelle John, who's a former superintendent of Paradise, who has her own incredible story to share. And I think her role in the film just really adds this amazing, personal, emotionally charged layer. Well, I'm glad you're going to talk to Michelle because she is an emotionally charged person. She went through a lot, but she also was one of the pillars of strength for Paradise and really helped put that town back together. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stacey. Suffice to say, you have endured and suffered immeasurable loss in the last couple of years not the least of which is the loss of your husband. And we're so sorry to hear about his passing. And he passed away during the filming of Rebuilding Paradise. So firstly, most importantly, I want to know, how are you doing right now? You know, I'm doing pretty doggone good. I have my family around. I have friends around. I have a friend that's helping me take care of myself physically. I've been doing a lot of hiking and biking and getting outside and eating right and I do a lot of self-care reading, and I'm actually doing okay. So thank you for asking. I'm so glad to hear that, Michelle, and thank you for sharing that. And because nothing is more important than health right now, I know this will be a long process, but I'm incredibly impressed with your resilience. It's very impressive. To give listeners just a shred of sense of the magnitude of what you were dealing with in the aftermath of the fire, both logistically and emotionally, I'd like to play a clip from Rebuilding Paradise that features you with various community members as you survey the damage at one of your elementary schools. So let's take a listen to that. Back there, this is all, all ours, and you can see the buildings that burnt, and that's where all the buses burnt. Mm. Dual garden over here. Yeah, all of our garden. Mm. In our district, we have nine schools, and eight of the nine are damaged and four are destroyed. 
That was the fifth grade wing. All the planning we've done still, we never thought it would be this bad. Yep. <sighs> okay, it's so hard to walk down here. Don't touch any of this, it's asbestos. <sighs> if the school doesn't go back, there'll be no town. And part of the problem is, there's nobody up here to come back to. So I'd love to know, in terms of your participation in this film, and you really are a central figure in what we see unfold in this incredible documentary, I want to know what most worried you about allowing the filmmakers to capture this experience. You know, I think it's all about relationships. Of course, we had media everywhere, and you just kind of get a gut feeling. And then about a week later, Zan and Liz and Link show up, and they just took the time to get to know us. And they were asking, is this okay? Is this okay? And they just became part of us. They came to our house for dinner, for drinks. We hung out together. And it was like there was no one extra there. They became part of paradise. So it was all about building up a trust. And for listeners who don't know who you are, maybe tell us a little bit about your role in the community and your role now, as it were. Right. I lived in the community, my husband and I, for 30 years. We raised our three children there. I worked in the school district, worked myself up from a vice principal to a principal of an elementary school to a principal of a high school to director of curriculum and instruction and all the way up to superintendent. It was a town. I was a Rotarian. My husband was involved in town council and the emergency operations center. He was the planning commissioner for Butte County. We were very, very involved in the town, and we loved the town. We didn't miss anything in that town. My husband was president of the Fire Safe Council and the Ready Raccoon for the town at all the parades and everything. And it was just really a hometown, great feeling to raise our kids there. And I would love to know, for people who haven't been following the rebuilding efforts, what is the status now of Paradise? We see the sort of beginning of the rebuilding efforts in the film, but certainly much has taken place since then. So tell us, what is the status of the community today? There's about 400 homes rebuilt in Paradise now. It's still going very slowly. It's moving forward, but it's going very slowly. If a stranger were to come upon the town, they would see burnt trees everywhere. We are still working through red tape with Cal OES and FEMA to get burnt trees down. In fact, I'm going to go up there next weekend to check on my mother's property, who, of course, lost everything. And I know there's dead trees and overgrown weeds, which is a huge problem now when people have left, that there is a huge fire danger again. As of today, they don't even have electricity. PG&E turned off all the electricity to the town for the next two days because of fire danger. So that's very difficult for people. It seems like it's, you know, one step forward, two steps back, step forward, step back. But there are people that are hanging in there and are totally bought in and they will make it work. It will never be the same. We all know that. But it will be a core group of people that rebuild the town. And it is a fabulous place to raise a family. And I know you're greatest passion in life has been children and their education. And tell me about the impact on the young people in town. And as all things to do with kids, they are so resilient and so incredible. 
And we see them even engaging in their own philanthropy to help hurricane victims at the end of the movie, which is just a beautiful sight. Tell me how they're doing now and what is the status of the actual school process? They are actually doing very well. Kids are so resilient. And now it's COVID, of course, and they are actually starting back to school in classrooms part-time next week. They have been doing distance learning. The kids are very resilient. And what it is about Paradise is most of the kids that are there, their parents graduate from Paradise High, their grandparents graduate from Paradise High, and that's all they know. The Omraith field is their field, and they want to be together. And that was the main goal throughout this whole tragedy was finding places where the kids could still be together and still be that peer community. And that's what we work so hard to do. And you mentioned the pandemic, of course, which colors everyone's experience, no matter who you are and where you live. How was that sort of crisis training that each of you endured? How did that prepare you to then also deal with this extra layer of crisis? Because I have a sense that the first responders created this impressive blueprint for helping people. Has that helped you cope with this? Yes. In administration, we're highly trained in national emergencies and state emergencies. Not really so much as a pandemic, but what you learn to do is you learn to be resilient and flow with things. And if you put kids first and families first, and of course, safety, safety is always first, you're not going to go wrong. You just have to make your decisions based on what's best for safety of students and families in the community. And with health being of the utmost concern for everyone right now, Have you suffered any lingering health effects from all that smoke exposure or any other elements of the Paradise Crisis? You know, I'm not quite sure yet. I seem like I am constantly have a sore throat or I'm coughing a lot, but I don't know if it's from that or what it's from being caught inside for so long because of the pandemic. I don't know if we'll ever know for a long time what the long-term effects are. I know my 86-year-old mother has been diagnosed with long-term effects from the smoke inhalation. I'm not sure. I won't be surprised if people do have long-term effects. And tell me how you felt when you saw the finished film, Rebuilding Paradise. What was that emotional experience like? Well, the first time I saw it, it was not quite finished. And Zan and Liz, the producers, had flown out from New York to show it to me. And I invited our best friends and, of course, my cousin And I was being prepped for what was coming up. So it was okay. It was emotional. We had a bottle of Rombauer wine and it was emotional. But I think the two hardest times I've seen it, I've seen the movie about six times. And I think the two most emotional times was the first time was at Sundance Film Festival. And it was in a large audience in Salt Lake City. And people were crying. You could hear them sobbing. And I had no idea how it affected people until we had the question and answer afterwards. And so that really affected me, of course, it touched me. And then the second time that was very emotional was the time I showed our three kids. Two of them had to get up and leave. And that's how I knew they had made a really positive and powerful film that was really touching to people. They did a fabulous job. And finally, there are a lot of people who still haven't fully grasped the danger of these fire conditions. What would you tell someone who thinks this can't happen to me? What sort of prep should someone do if they live in a risky area? What advice would you give them? First of all, it can happen to you. Second of all, have your go bag ready. 
and you can get on, you can Google it at any time, fire prepared go bag, have it ready. Most important, there's two things. Like Woody says, always have a full tank of gas. Half a tank is an empty tank these days. And most important, when they tell you to leave, you leave. You don't wait. You don't question. You leave. They know what they're doing. The firefighters, this is what they're trained to do. So you grab your go bag, which includes your animals and your medications, of course, and all of that, your pictures, and you leave with a full tank of gas. It's very specific advice and very sage advice. So I hope people listening, we all start to think ahead as fire season now drags on and on. And there are very few places that are unaffected by these dangers. So we greatly appreciate your advice, Michelle, and your bravery and all the work you've put into this project and just making yourself available today. Thank you. I'd like to thank Sarah Bernstein, Zan Parker, and Michelle John for joining me today. For more information on Rebuilding Paradise, please visit rebuildingparadise.film. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.